should have page 1216 memorized by now, but that's where I'm asking you to turn. If you're using the Pew Bible, page 1216, there you'll find the book of Jude. Just 25 verses as we come this morning to move into that section, which began in verse 17, but continues this morning. We do encourage you, as I say each week now, that having God's word open on your lap as we follow along together in God's word uh, really is a blessing and enables us to, to see it more clearly, to remember it as we hear it. And so please have a copy of God's word open as the Lord uh, would allow. We spent a great deal of time, uh, of course, over the last many weeks looking at the verses previous to these where Jude unmasks these false teachers And in studying these things, we've gotten a much better sense, I think, of the urgency that Jude felt in writing this letter. I think we saw it very clearly last week as we looked at verses 17 through 19, which can be a summary of the previous verses, where he calls these believers to remember that Jesus had taught his own apostles that there would be those in the last day who would come, who would be scoffers, etc., Ultimately, they are devoid of the spirit. They are not true believers or followers of Jesus Christ. Yet they will try to deceive and lead astray those who are in the church. Remember, he says, that Jesus told his apostles. Remember that they in turn told you. These men are not to be trifled with. They are dangerous. And the stakes, of course, are very high. What are those stakes? It is nothing less than the eternal souls of men and women and children. Because a perverted gospel that leads to ungodly living cannot and does not save anyone. It is devoid of the Holy Spirit and therefore devoid of the power to raise those who are dead in trespasses and sins from their graves and to give them new life. Now we come to what is in these verses the great application of this little book and the great answer to the main question with which the book begins. How do we, how do we, give me practical steps, Jude, how do we contend for this faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints? What do we do? How do we fight this battle? How do we gain the victory? You will notice this morning, as we look at these verses, that Jude, in a beautifully balanced way, so true of all the Bible, speaks to this question in two specific ways. First, in verses 20 and 21, he calls these beloved believers individually, but the the verbs here are plural, so corporately, what they must do as they seek to contend for this faith in the face of such false teachers. What steps do individual believers and the church as a whole need to take in order to contend for the faith? And then in verses 22 and 23, he gives a picture of what their responsibility is to one another as they battle together. For this is one people, one body, many members individually, yet joined together in Jesus Christ, and they have we have a responsibility to one another. We're not to simply just watch people drift away and fall away from Christ and follow in the teachings of false teachers and the paths of ungodliness. Jude will give us very practical ways that we can, in verses 22 and 23, that we can help one another 
when those times happen in the life of our church, when someone may be wandering from the things of Christ and from the mercy of God. And so we'll look at that section next week. But the first one is before us this morning in verses 20 and 21. But I'd like to read all of 17 through 23 and ask you to stand as you give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is a holy faith because it is a holy God and his word is holy. And so we give our careful attention to it, this God's word. But you, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh." All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers, they fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, as we approach these words this morning, this is your word to us, your people, gathered here in this place. And we confess our need for the Spirit to take that word, to press it into our hearts and minds that we might not only believe, but follow in joyful obedience. We pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You've probably already noticed what Jude is doing in these verses, beginning in verse 17. He's setting up a great contrast, isn't he? A contrast between the false teachers and their ungodly ways And those who are called, according to Jude, the beloved of the Lord, those he loves in the Lord, and those who are to walk differently. That's the contrast. When you see words like, but you, but you in verse 17, but you in verse 20, you know that Jude is setting for us this contrast. And you immediately think back to these false teachers, their way of life. We've heard about it all of the past several weeks, how they live, what they believe, And now Jude is going to say, how are we to live who are the beloved of God and the beloved of Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James? In these two verses, 17 and 20, he calls them again the beloved of God. He says, you need to be different. There should be a distinction between you and the false teachers that he's just unmasked and shown them to be who they really are. Between them and every true believer, the false teachers, who are they? Well, Again, last week helped us because they are simply devoid of the spirit. That covers it all. But they're dividers. They're those who practice dissension. They're grumblers, malcontents. They go after every sinful desire. They pervert the grace of God and the grace of the gospel to their own selfish ways. They pursue everything that they desire in the flesh. That's who they are. But you, beloved of the Lord, beloved of Jude, you are not to live that way. You are first, and we saw this last week, you're first to remember the warnings that Jesus and his apostles gave to you. Remember them. 
They warned you that this would happen. It's happening, he says. It's happening so much that they've crept in among you. They're in among you. You don't recognize them. You need to recognize them. But you need to remember these things. Call them out for who they are. Second, he says, in these verses, you need to enter into the fight yourself. This is not a battle that you sit on the sidelines and watch. You are engaged in this because you belong to Christ. And the threat here is against Christ, his gospel, his kingdom, the work of God in this world. So enter the fight. Start to contend. And here's how you do it, he says. And then third, you need to watch out for one another. You need to look on each side, in front and behind. You need to see those who are lagging, struggling with doubts, concerned about the affairs of this world, tempted to be drawn away from the mercy of God in Christ. And you need to help them, even to the very potential damage of your own life. And we'll talk about that next week and what this means. But you need to help one another in contending for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. What he really does is give us in these verses a beautiful and memorable picture, in my mind at least, of what is the ordinary Christian life. This is not simply the Christian life for when the battle is raging because what Jude has taught us is the battle is always raging. The threat of false teaching and false teachers in our day continues. It's in every church, every denomination, false teachers who creep in from the inside, false teachers at major seminaries and places of teaching who are teaching things that are apparent to the word of God, that are contrary to God's word. And so Jude gives us a beautiful and memorable picture of what is the ordinary Christian life. And before we look then at these duties that we have to prepare ourselves It is right to make note, as I've already done in this introduction, that this is a passage that speaks to the whole of the church in its corporate status, not to individual believers, not to special believers who particularly are gifted in this. This really is the ordinary Christian life, and every believer is part of it. This battle is not a loner's battle. It is not either a life of watching from the sidelines of what is going on and go, or going it alone. But the call of Christ to salvation is a call of Christ to community together. The community of believers. Think of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, to the Romans, to the Ephesians. As he talks about the body of Christ being united together into one body under the head who is Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the community of believers carrying out their responsibility, yes, but with other believers around them, assisting one another and recognizing that we live together, we die together. That's who we are as believers, not on the sidelines, but active and engaged in contending for the faith. So the question is, how do we do it? How do we do it individually, corporately, working together? There are very easily four things here that Jude uh, mentions for us that are very, very helpful and very practical. Look at the first one with me in verse 20. Beloved, you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. 
Now, it is a holy faith because it comes from heaven, from God himself who is holy. It is a faith because we are called to believe the tenets of the doctrines that God has given to us in his word. That's what I believe the reference is here. The reference is to that faith for which we are always contending, which is the collection of truths that God has entrusted to his church. We're contending for that faith, the revelation of God. This idea of building up or, or building in general is very common in the scriptures. Matthew Henry in his commentary goes to the imagery of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As Paul writes of ministers who are both faithful and unfaithful in their ministries. And he writes this with respect to this idea of building. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder... I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the the substance of this faith is everything that is in Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, I think this passage very clearly primarily applies to those called to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be those who will build upon the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, with gold and silver and precious stones. And they will last through the fires of God's judgment. But wood, hay, and stubble will not. But the idea here is a building of growing in the faith. What Paul says he is called to do as an apostle. There's also the picture of building in Ephesians 4 that we read earlier. I won't read the passage again, but you know that Christ has ascended into heaven. And as he has, he's given gifts to men. And those gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The the building up is a reference to the maturity of the believer growing in the knowledge of Christ, of who he is, of the gospel itself. That's really what's in view here as Jude writes this phrase, building yourselves up, In this, your most holy faith. And when he talks this way, we are reminded of other places as well. Remember, this is a faith, according to verse 3, that was delivered unto the saints. And so Paul writes in Colossians 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught and abounding with thanksgiving. This faith is the foundation for it speaks of that which is in Christ, in his teachings, his gospel, his word. And so a wise man, it has been said, will hear and will always increase in learning. We are ever growing. I I love when we receive the prayer requests as uh, they're sent to us from our students and those in the workforce. And, and so often you see that common refrain, don't you? Pray that I would have an ever-increasing desire 
to read and study God's word and to be in prayer. Why do we want that? Because that's the way we grow. That's the way we become rooted and established in the things of Christ. It is through the word. That's what he's referencing here. Through the study, the reading, the hearing, the growing in knowledge of his word. And and those who love Christ and those who want to contend for the faith will avail themselves of every opportunity to do that. To grow in God's word and understanding it. To memorize scripture, to hide it in our heart that we may not sin against him. That's what Jude's after here. When he says we contend for the faith by doing this, building ourselves up in this most holy faith. We had our first session meeting with our three new elders elected by this congregation this past week. It was a wonderful time. I will tell you, we went till past midnight. That's not typical. And I'm sure these men hope it's not typical. But it was a wonderful time together. We were tired, but it was a joy to be together. And as we gathered in the very beginning, Elder Boyajian led us in devotions. And he spoke about this very picture of the ordinary Christian life. And he referenced the text in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where Luke writes, And they, that is, these believers... Now, this is at the very beginning of the New Testament church. So it's really important to look at what they're doing in the face of what they have to contend for in their culture and their environment. It's really important to look at what they did in the very beginning. What did they do? They devoted themselves. Love that word. They devoted themselves, gave themselves wholly to the apostles' teaching to fellowship of believers being together, to the breaking of bread. Elder Boyajian rightly said that's a reference to the Lord's Supper and to the prayers, which most commentators believe is not just end to praying, but end to those seasons and times of prayer that you see all throughout the book of Acts. They're all over the book of Acts. The believers gathered together for another time of prayer. We have one Wednesday evening where we gather corporately as a church to pray together as a body corporately. Peter notes this as well when he writes to the believers like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. He's referring to the word of God, the pure undefiled word of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It is a hungering and a thirsting after righteousness. In the Greek, and we'll note this later, and we'll probably always continue to refer to Nathaniel since he's active in his studies now. He'll tell you it's a present participle in the Greek, which means it's something that we're always to be about doing now and forever in the Christian life. This idea of being committed to building ourselves up And so I ask you this morning, as you think about this aspect of the ordinary Christian life, does it describe you? Or would you, perhaps with so many of our students and our adults in the workforce, would you say, yes, pastor, pray for me as well? That my desire for the word of God would grow so that my activity, my reading of it would grow as well. Brothers and sisters, there is no shortcut 
to building ourselves up in this most holy faith, which is part of contending for the faith, which is what Jude's calling us to, than to be men and women and children who are in the word of God, studying it, reading it, memorizing it, so that we might be built up into maturity. Well, that's not all he says. There are four things, so add to that. And praying in the Holy Spirit. This also is a present participle, which reflects the ongoing and continuous action of the believer, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout church history, this has been understood clearly to be not any special gifting here that is spoken of, but rather of the ordinary work and assistance of the Holy Spirit in helping us to pray. We cannot pray apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We have no desire to pray apart from his grace in our lives. It's true of all praying that it is done in the Holy Spirit. It is not some special kind of praying. It is to pray in or with or by the Holy Spirit, by his leading and gifts and graces given so that we might always pray in him, that is, in the Spirit. Paul alludes to this, I think, in Romans 8, when he speaks about the importance of prayer in the life of the believer, and often the struggle that we face, and he brings in this understanding of how the Spirit helps us in our times of weakness. For in this hope, he says, that we will be redeemed, our bodies redeemed, ultimately we were saved, Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees not? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We are naturally weak in this area because the flesh is warring against the Spirit constantly. And apart from the Spirit's power, we would never pray. For we do not know, he says, what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It is by the power of the Spirit and by the presence of the Spirit that we are to pursue or this contending for the faith. The Spirit is our teacher, and he promises to teach us how to pray as we ought and use all the means of God's grace to that end. One writer said, and it's very helpful, the Holy Spirit who enables us to pray that very first prayer of faith, which is what? Lord, save me. That is, driven, guided, prompted by the Spirit of God within us, is the same Holy Spirit who enables us to maintain the faith-sustaining and growing life of prayer. It's the same Spirit. It's not different, given in different measure or whatever. It is the same Spirit who enabled us to cry out in help to God, save me, who sustains me in this matter of prayer Thomas Manton, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Jude, writes this with respect to what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. And I think he's right. It means that we pray with affection, 
to God, the Spirit, warming our hearts with respect to who to whom we pray. We love the Father, so we delight to come to him as he delights to hear from us. We pray, secondly, with confidence because of the Spirit, because we know that we are in Christ, that we are already in him, and so we come with confidence. And we come, thirdly, with reverence, remembering that it is a holy God to whom we come. Building yourselves up in this, our most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, keeping yourselves in the love of God. Now, this is different than the other three because this is the only imperative that we have in the text, meaning it is a command. It's not a participle, that what you should do and keep on doing, although this is what you're keeping on doing as well. But it's, it's the command. And all of the three other ones sort of find their meaning in place around this command. This is central, which is why the sermon title is based on this text. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now we know, and you know that I know, but we know together that it is God who keeps us. We know that. We've been told in the very beginning of Jude, we are kept by God for Jesus Christ. A, a glorious picture on that great day where he will present us to the Son. The Son will present us to the Father. What a wonderful picture that is. He keeps us until that day. We know because we haven't gotten there, but you already know because you're memorizing the book of Jude, right? And in the latter verses of this book, you know that he is able to keep you from stumbling. He is the one who keeps us. He guards us. He protects us. He will keep us until the end. And that, brothers and sisters, is our great hope. But that's not what Jude is saying. We are kept in the love of God. We are kept by God himself. This is a command, an imperative, a duty. This is like Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Know this, that God, right, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing this, that it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his great pleasure. So you have this cooperation, if you will, very understandable for Jude to speak this way. Yes, you are a believer kept for Jesus Christ, and he will keep you. He will not fail in that, and that's your hope. Not your holding on to him, but his holding on to you. But you also must keep yourself in that love. Now, we know this because our love often grows cold. We grow weary in our love for Christ, do we not? That's why the command is here. Keep yourself in that love, in your love for God in your love and devotion to him. Well, how do you do that? Well, Jesus did not leave us ignorant. You know the verses as well as I do. If you love me, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The very next chapter in John 15, John 14, 15, 16, John 17, all say the same thing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Did you you catch that? Just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. How does Jesus abide, keep himself in the love of God? By delighting to keep the father's commandments. He says it's the same thing for us. As we delight to keep God's commandments, we abide in his love. We are keeping ourselves in his love. In the love of God. It's been the main theme, I think, of 1 John in our study as we wrap that up this coming week, Lord willing. I was reminded this week in my study of the words of the traditional statement of intent when we see uh, people uh, married. You know, there's that part in the very beginning. It usually happens when the father is still there. He wants to hear that intent clearly stated, right? This is the traditional declaration, and this language is not something that we use most often. Do you promise to love and cherish him in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, and forsaking all others? Keep yourself only unto him for so long as you both shall live. Keeping yourself only unto that person the wife to the husband, the husband to the wife, uniting themselves to one another with undivided loyalty. What a picture, a beautiful picture of what I think Jude is talking about here. And that's what happened, isn't it? As we, by the grace of God from eternity past, were betrothed to Jesus Christ, it's not improper to see ourselves united in this picture of marriage to Christ It's what the Bible would have us understand, us taking him. It's what will happen next week as Christiana is baptized. That image will be very present. Christiana says, I take you, Jesus, to be my Lord and my Savior. You said it as well in your baptism. Whether you were baptized as an infant and lived and came to believe all of that, or whether as an adult, it doesn't matter. That's what happened. You were betrothed to Christ. You kept yourself and you're keeping yourself in that love. It's a promise of undivided loyalty and obedience. It is, as one writer says, it's love's response to love. I love that. So simple. It's love's, our love's response to his love to us. That's all the Christian life is. And it means keeping yourselves in obedience to Christ. That's how we display our love to him. Jesus said it so clearly. But listen, you must first come to know that love, must you? You have to first come to know that love. You'll never be able to work this out yourself. You'll never be able to generate in your own spirit a love for God when you have never come to know his love for you in Christ. That's why it's love's response to love. And so for you, if you're here this morning and not a believer, the first thing you need to understand is the love of God in Jesus Christ as displayed and demonstrated so clearly on the cross. 
well, third or fourthly, he adds this final picture, and we'll end here, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all of mercy from beginning to end. We are saved in mercy, and we wait for mercy. I love that picture. It's a picture clearly of a reference to waiting for his return. And when he returns, what will he bring with him? Mercy and grace upon mercy and grace towards us. Calvin rightly said that it's the hardest part of the Christian life, this little word, waiting. To wait, to wait for the revelation of Jesus Christ, to wait for the end of the sin and suffering of this world, to wait for this body of death and sin to finally be put off. It's the hardest thing we do, which is why we need the Spirit, which is why we need to build ourselves up, which is why we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's waiting for that, that settled truth, that when he comes for us who believe, he is bringing an abundance, an overflow of mercy. What we experience now in part, we will experience then in its glorious fullness. I remember last week, I think Pastor Fisher referenced this last week. I think he referenced or maybe read, I think it was reading from Psalm 73 as the scripture reading. And you remember that psalm, it's the psalmist living in this life, looking around him, wondering why the wicked don't ever seem to have tough lives, right? They have all the good things that we really do want. They never seem to have any troubles. They never seem to have any health troubles. They're always good. You know, everything's good. Remember he says, I was like a brute beast when I felt that way, when I spoke this way. I felt brutish, ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, he says. Remember his turnaround when he came into the temple, into the people of God, into the worship? He says this at the very end. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, yes, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's where we need to be. And when we do that, we are living in this waiting period for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This, brothers and sisters, is the ordinary Christian life. It's what will enable you to contend for the faith and me as well. It's the only way. It's the only sort of pattern that we have to follow as Jude lays it out for us. But I want you to notice, we read all the verses because I want you to see it here. Did you notice the Trinitarian structure of these verses? Uh, Praying in the Holy Spirit keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think that's by accident? It's not. It's a reminder that even as we are called to prepare ourselves for battle and to contend for the faith, we do so by the power that comes from God and not from ourselves. This is not a self-help religion that calls people to realize the great potential within you so that you can rise to any question or any occasion and beat any foe. This is not um, 
you know, this kind of let go and let God religion that we hear so often. I don't really have to do anything. God's going to do it all. It's a life that calls one to deny self, to recognize that you have no potential apart from Christ, that you are unable on your own to contend for anything, and that you cannot even begin to do so. Salvation beginning to end, as Jonah confessed from the belly of that great fish, is of the Lord, as he revealed himself as one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, each committed to the salvation of the people for whom Christ died. And therefore, even as we learn this tactic of battle, this battle plan, we remember that it's not by our strength, but by the Lord's alone. And so we're led to rejoice in him, to give thanks to him for his power at work within us. But remember, stay close to him. Stay close to him. Build yourself up. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God and wait for the revelation of the mercy of God at his coming. Like you, I've been hearing perhaps a lot this week about the ancient, not ancient, but the uh, years ago sort of history of people like David Koresh and the Branch Davidians because we're soon approaching the 30th anniversary of that tragedy in Texas where more than 900 or more than 100 died. And many of us who are old enough can remember the famous Jim Jones tragedy of 1978. And we're approaching the 45th anniversary of that massacre where more than 900 followers of Jim Jones, that cult leader, died or were killed, really. And we ask ourselves, how is that possible that people would do that? Why would they go so far as to follow a man, even down the paths of death, to drink a poison so that they know the certain outcome will be death? What in the world, how in the world did that ever happen today? We're we're intelligent people, aren't we, we say? We're wise people. Well, we're not so wise. We're not so intelligent on our own. And anyone is susceptible to the leading of these false teachers Charismatic men who come along and declare themselves to be something that they're not. They gain a hearing and a following and people suddenly start to follow. Why did all of that happen to them? Because they did not do what Jude told them to do. They didn't remember. They didn't build themselves up in this most holy faith. They didn't pray in the Holy Spirit. They didn't keep themselves in the love of God. And they certainly were not waiting for the revelation of Christ. The only way to defend the gospel is to grow in it as we understand its truths and put them into daily practice in our lives. But it doesn't stop there. Next time we're together, we'll see what our responsibility is to one another. But right now, let us take seriously these commandments of Jude, these callings, that we would do these for the glory of God and for our own good. Let us pray. Our Father... It is stunning that even in our day, we find so many easily led astray. Even teaching that is false, perhaps not as flamboyant as these that we've mentioned, but certainly those teachings which are leading people away from the truth of Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel, that one faith delivered to the saints. We pray that you would keep us by your powerful hand, And that you would, by your grace, grant us everything that we need to do these things, as Jude points out to us, 
that we might be engaged in contending for this faith. And Father, that you would, through it all, because you alone deserve it, receive the glory and the blessing and the power both now and forevermore, we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.